I was working at the ballpark in the session stand. I was like, how many weeks of hours of hours of work did it take me to make this money? And I just made it here in a matter of minutes by flipping this thing, doing no work. And it was that was just the ultimate light switch of like big margins. You just you never thought of as a kid because you were always like, oh, you 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 were just kind of taught. You were kind of oh, work for somebody else. It'll be you'll be the boss one day. Well, why couldn't you be the boss today? Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the No More Zero Days podcast. As always, I'm your host, Eric Savage. Today, Alex Miller joins us for episode 24. Alex is the founder of Click & Mortar, an online retail hybrid concept that is a wholesale auction liquidator in Birmingham, Alabama. He's also the host of the Start South podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping show the success of many different forms and many different roads. Today, we talk all things business, his entrepreneurial journey, how you can flip things online, Auburn football, and much more. Episode 24 begins now. All right, so we're going to go in a little bit of a reverse order here. And I want to talk about with what you have going on right now, because I think it's really interesting. So I'll ask you purposely a pretty open-ended question, and uh, we'll go from there. So tell me about what has led you to make the life decision, business decision, strategic direction decision to start your business click and mortar. I guess you say it was the biggest thing was overcoming the fear of being your own boss and working for yourself and taking, you know, step over the ledge. Now it's easier to, for people who have like a support system, either family or maybe some type of money they've got, or they don't have a lot of debt or a spouse against support. I don't have any of that. You know, I got a lot of debt, you know, I got a house. I, don't, I mean, my family would help me, but they're not like just giving me money. Just, Hey, you know, in your late twenties, you're entitled to that. So, there's a lot of fear of that, uh, just sort of overcoming that. And I guess the big thing that helped me overcome that was the fact that uh, I'd done this before. Um, I started a business now, not related to this, but just the idea of starting a business and everything I was doing was all me, all the, uh, you know, everything fell back to me. And, you know, I did it right, I guess, when I was in and about to graduate college and after. And, you know, I was my only support system and just broke as all get out and then, you know, survived doing that for years. So I guess just knowing, like, Hey, I could do this. I learned from my mistakes. I can do it a lot better. And I have a lot more support and tools and I guess knowledge that I didn't have back then. If I could do it well then and be fairly successful, I could definitely do it again. So it was just that culminating with the fact that, you know, that the, being an entrepreneur is always a dream of mine. Having a business was always a dream of mine. This was a work I'd done on and off as a side hustle for years. So I definitely had a passion and a pretty good knowledge of what I was doing. So I decided, you know, just kind of that idea of there's no time like now. So why not actually just go and do it. And just all the dominoes fell into place with, um, me leaving a long-term, very stable job that had really good money. The, um, just the timing of some people who I'd worked with in the past kind of reach out to me, like, Hey, we should start doing this again. And I kind of started doing it and you, you start, you start getting a little bit of a itch. You want to scratch it. Then it just, you know, starts domino. You start the dominoes start falling from there. I had purchased some equipment, and uh, now that I had a house, I had some facilities to do this, which in hindsight was kind of a nightmarish decision to make, but you know, the time, I guess, it all sounded good. So once all these things started happening, uh, the money came in, obviously, to be a little bit more mature and having a grasp on how to do things from all those years of knowledge, it really made sense to scale up what I was doing, because why not? It was the dream. Why would anybody not want to live their dream? What do you think is so appealing for so many people about this idea of buying used goods or secondhand goods or whatever term you're the uh, SME on this uh, subject matter expert that is so appealing for so many people. And why do you think it's really taken off in the last couple of years? Well, most definitely the internet. Cause, I mean, beforehand you literally had the one ads in the newspaper. So it was, if you had a secondhand good, you would call the newspaper and put, I don't know, 50 cent, $1, $2, however much it was to put an ad in there. And that was sort of how people, bought and sold goods and i guess to an extent extent it was uh especially big for cars you know, it was kind of the pre-craigslist beforehand so it was always there but really there was just no way to effectively get it from point a to point b because you have to pay the ad you have to like it for the newspaper you have to everybody sees it you know it's just not a very effective system of course there's no pictures so fast forward to the internet age i mean i think people always had the desire to sell things i mean hence the idea of garage sales but when you have the internet and you have the phones and the apps and the ability for people to take pictures and now with the platforms evolving with the extent of facebook marketplace ebay uh, etsy macari and let go offer up and all these countless other apps and online platforms that's what really 
spiked this because I think people always had the desire to collect. People always have the desire to get a good deal and make a little bit of money for stuff they have. So it was kind of a win-win. It was for people who wanted to get rid of stuff, but it was, uh, this is still too nice to throw away. Could make a little bit of money. Might not be a horrible idea to have some extra cash for a bill here or there. May not donate this. Where's that happy middle ground? I think that's obviously the reselling the good, especially if it's something that has some good value or let's say it was a, a clothing item that didn't fit that couldn't be returned or something collectible that somebody may want. So it does have a, it, it does have a, you know, the idea of like kind of repurposing things. There, there's the demand for that. And of course there's a supply. So the, so I would say that supply and demand is very balanced in this world. And I'm just being, you know, purely capitalism here. It's, it's all self-regulating. So it's not like there's big businesses behind these decision makings. It's just, Hey, what is the price? You know, the price of used goods kind of sets itself. And it's, I would say it's kind of fair for both sides so that it just makes people want to do it because like I said, they feel like they can get a fair deal. And then the people who are selling the goods can make some money. And with all the tools that are available with today, I would say that's why you've really seen an explosion with this to the point where people like me can actually make a little career out of it. I know you kind of touched on it a little bit in your first answer, but was there ever a singular moment that you can recall uh, a single cell or just even for you personally, a moment laying in bed at night, head on the pillow that you were actually like, I'm going to go for it. And I'm actually going to start a real literal, you know, business inside a building behind this and, and move out of doing it from home or, you know, from doing it out of the garage. Cause I think that so many people listening, whether it's, you know, they have a flipping business or they're trying to lose weight or get in a relationship or anything. There's always those those big moments or those personal conversations we have with ourselves where we like want to do something, but then we start to doubt ourselves or our mind starts to tell us or other people start to tell us why we can't do it. Was there ever a moment like that for you where either you were questioning yourself and then, you know, you had this big moment and then that led you to do it? Or was this just something you knew you wanted to do all along and it was pretty easy for you? Yeah, it was a culmination of, of moments for that. I mean, the very first, and we might get into this later in the show, so I won't uh, spoil the story there, is when I had my first big flip, I guess when I was 17, that really kind of hit the hit the switch of like, oh, you can do this. You can make a lot of money. In sales, and anybody who do sales, especially high-volume sales, will tell you the way you got to get through it is you have to thrive off those highs. When you close a deal, there's this adrenaline rush. There's this an endorphin rush that you get when you do that. And if that doesn't just get you going and make you excited and get you fired up, then sales isn't really your thing. You're just kind of doing it as a means to get by. I am the far extreme of that to where like I live on that excitement and that feeling of getting whatever deal I'm doing closed. That could mean I sold some book with a tattered cover for a dollar or I sold something I paid for for a dollar for a thousand. Whatever extreme, I still get amply pumped. And... With that, you take those moments to see, okay, how can we channel that energy to something positive? So as to what you're asking on that moment, it was a series of those feelings. Like I said, when I'm 17, we had that big flip with that c Bam, okay, there's the moment. That gets me going on this path. But to keep it recent, it definitely, the next moment was next summer, or next summer, <laughs> last summer, when I uh, had a truck issue and I had a truck and a trailer and that was on my little side truck and I'd work out of it and the engine on it had some major failures because I was stupid and didn't research common engine problems for blank year vehicle, which if anybody buying a vehicle, make sure you do that, especially if it's used or you'll end up like me. So I had to end up selling my truck and trailer for the salvage value I could get out of it, which was nowhere near what it should have been worth. So that was definitely a low blow, but I did have a little bit of money left over. I've always had a work truck on the side. It's been very helpful. And I'd always joked about wanting to buy like a big work truck. In my case, this is a box truck. So for those who are like box truck, think like a big U-Haul or like a delivery truck, something like that. That's what I have. And I realized, wow, the prices for these things are really cheap. Think of the work I could do with this thing. And I just went ahead and pulled the trigger and just used that cash to buy it. And then right when I went back to work with using it, I just saw all the potential of like, oh my gosh, this makes a lot of sense. I have amply upped my productivity and my efficiency having this. And so that was sort of another, that was kind of the, the more recent switch. I was like, hmm, maybe we could do this. Got a little bit more time since I, at that point I was um, out of my full-time job. And then I just started doing it. And then 
The next switch is, okay, well, I've worked with somebody before. I hadn't worked with somebody in a while. Let's bring somebody back on. Let's do that partner thing. That was a switch that went off a long time ago, the productivity of a team. Uh, I had a friend of mine who, will fast forward a long story, came on board with me. So then I said, okay, we've got the facilities to run this. We're scaling up our size and purchasing. We've got equipment to do it now. And it was just all of the puzzle pieces slowly sort of started coming together just because I incrementally added one little piece at a time to where I'd say, okay, this makes sense. Oh, this really makes sense. Okay, we're really getting somewhere. Now it's like a snowball rolling down a hill. So I guess you could say there wasn't just one necessary aha moment, but it was definitely everything coming together and me seeing as it was coming together the positive effect it was having from efficiency, productivity, and of course, you know, financially. So you talked about you know, specifically the age of 17 was like one of the first times when you had those first moments. How did you really learn salesmanship or how did you even figure out that this was something you're interested in? Because, you know, on one hand, people might say, oh, it's so easy to sell something or you're just flipping, you know, used goods or your old car. But there's so much knowledge that goes into how to price things, how to market things, how to take pictures of things, how to think like the consumer. How did you even... Did you just stumble on this by accident that you were really into this? Was there other moments, even a previous to 17, that you know gave you a small taste of this? Like, Tell me that story. Yeah, I hate to say the phrase that it just comes naturally because I feel like people who are in sales and are good at it or there are people who aren't really good at it, Like, they both sides, I think, hate that answer. So I'll try to elaborate a little bit more than that. But rewinding to that time period of my life, I wish I could go and just – relive how free of a spirit I was as just like a teenager growing up through middle school and high school. I just had no cares in the world in like a good way. And I just didn't really think about the future all that much. It was very much just like very much day by day. So present in the moment, just happy, having fun. And it was like, I knew these milestones in life were like, okay, I know college is going to be here. Like I know one day I'm going to get a job. It's like, I had no idea really where I was going to college. I just knew it would like work out when the time came. And as far as, like, a job, or like, what I was going to major in and then what I was going to do, like, somehow I guess I always just thought, like, oh, I'll do something in business. I come from a tons of entrepreneurs in my family, tons of people who own their own business, fairly large family. So, like, it definitely could say it was in my blood for sure. So, I guess it was just imprinted on me so much from my family. I just, I guess it was like I knew without knowing, like, that was somehow going to be what I was going to do. Because I was just so raised in that world and just had loved it. And all the people who inspired me, like, that's what they did. Because it was just so impressed on me, like, I didn't even realize it was. So I never really thought about that. And, yeah, I had jobs. I worked a ton. I loved working as a kid. I had my first job when I was 14. But I never really really did anything, like, in sales. It wasn't like I was that kid that was, like, hustling a lemonade stand or trying to get a business plan. Like, I I would kind of, like, fantasize about it, but I never really, like hit pen to paper. It never like really came to fruition. I guess I didn't have like as cool of a story as some of these awesome success stories you hear these people doing. And you know, Oh, why didn't I think of that? I was just kind of living my life being a kid. But, uh, you know, I didn't, my parents, like, I would get food or something, but like, it wasn't like I just, if I wanted something, I had to earn the money to buy it. You know, it wasn't, there wasn't this grandiose, like, Oh, Hey, we bought you a brand new car. Hey, iPad, bam, it's yours laptop. Here you go the latest clothes you got them. Like if I wanted nice things, like I had to get it. My parents took care of me, but at that age, I definitely was far from spoiled, but I like being independent. I didn't want to depend on them. So I think that has a lot part to do with it, but it it came to me when I ended up buying that sea for very cheap and selling it for what turned to be about a thousand dollar profit. And right now that would be awesome. As a kid, that was like, Holy crap, that's huge money. I was working at the ballpark and session stand. I was like, how many weeks, of hours of hours of work did it take me to make this money and I just made it here in a matter of minutes by flipping this thing doing no work and it was that was just the ultimate light switch of like big margins you just you never thought of as a kid because you were always like oh you, you, you were just kind of taught you were kind of oh work for somebody else it'll be you'll be the boss one day well why couldn't you be the boss today it was like all these questions were running through my head of like oh I can totally do this so it wasn't with sales or anything or the business that was impressed on me. It was just uh, that one moment happened, and then it just started to other things happen. I was like, oh, I can sell that. Ooh, I can sell that. Wait, someone's giving it away. Hey, I'll take it. I can sell that. 
back then it was all about Craigslist or sort of like people I knew. And then kind of got to consignment. People were like, hey, man, um, you want to help me get rid of this? My friend's parents would, hey, uh, we've got this old so-and-so in the backyard, that old swing. Think you can find someone that buys it. And so I kind of got to be like that guy for people. But people started flipping money or, excuse me, fl- splitting money with me. And then you got that reputation. And it was like I was making way more than than people who were working just like hourly teenage jobs. And, of course, I was having way less hours to work and having a lot more flexibility. So just doing that, it made sense. And just the natural thing to grab was secondhand goods because they were prominent. A key thing to factor into this is this was right around the 2008 recession. So there wasn't a lot of money going around. People were being very frugal with their money. So the people who were selling stuff to just get quick cash were selling stuff fairly cheap. But there was also a very big demand for secondhand goods because, like I said, people were being very careful with their money. And so I just took that work and then spun it off and kept doing that through college and scaling up my operations. And I had like a little textbook kingpin of um, half.com, which doesn't really exist anymore, but it was part of eBay. That was like a really good place to buy textbooks. But you could also sell textbooks on there. So I would like get all my friends at the end of the semester and be like, hey, I'll sell your old textbooks for you. I'll split half the money for you because you went to college and you sold a textbook to the bookstore after the semester, your $300 textbook they'd give you like $4.50 for. Well, I might be able to sell it for 70 or 80 bucks, and I could give somebody 40 after I took my cut, which was way more than what they were getting. And so then that kind of spun off the thing where someone would tell their parents, hey, you know, Alex sold my textbooks. I got this much money for them. And the parents were like, oh, my gosh wow, that's really impressive. And then they'd call me and be like, hey, this is so-and-so's parents. You need to come to the house, check out all the stuff I got in the garage. And it, that just, it really went to word of mouth to where I realized that effective business plan before I was even thinking anything about or had any formal education about like business plannings and how that worked. How much of word of mouth, specifically when you're selling goods, do you feel like is driven by people hear a success story versus how much of it do you think is based on like your trust factor? Because this is just something that I continually think about a lot, whether it's, you know, your story of you selling textbooks for someone and then all of a sudden someone's parents like, Hey, can you come sell this? But I even think about my own life as my own consumer self. And I'm always looking for that personal person. And it's just an interesting thing to think about is like, am I attracted to, the success that, oh, Alex just sold my son or daughter's textbooks, or is it that there actually is like kind of this trust factor of you're not being a snake oil salesman and, you know, taking way more than you should on the deal or something about that? I think it's like a little bit of both. I don't think one really has any overstep over another because with that sales, you have to be confident. So going into it, you've really got to assert and let somebody know like, hey, I can do this. I'm the guy. So I wouldn't say that trust, especially starting off, really comes from a sense of them knowing or maybe that word of mouth. But if you just sell yourself in a way uh, and present yourself in a very clean cut and professional manner, people will just inherently trust you if you can kind of play the game right and sell yourself in the right way. So it's almost like your success is going into that. And same deal with success. Like they may not necessarily know what you've done, but if you just carry yourself with that kind of mojo, they'll think you're successful. And if you just pitch it right with the, you know, you remember the elevator pitches in school, like, Oh, how do you have the elevator pitch? Well, that's exactly how that is in those moments. When those people hit you, like you might have a little introduction and right now, especially the internet, it's all about, you know, feedback and reviews. So if you've got good feedback and reviews, people are just going to assume all this person's done well. So there's going to be a little bit of assumption there on both ways with uh, with trust and success. I think you just got to kind of take that and really go with it. Now, you don't want to go to the fake it till you make it extreme. You don't want to go too, too far with it. But you definitely have to teeter, teeter on that side and take the situations that you're given with those people. But really fill in the gaps they don't know with that first impression. Tell me about how you came to the decision to name your business Click of Mortar. Because I know this story, but I know there's another name you're thinking about, but you wanted it to be this business to be bigger than just yourself, bigger than just your name or attributed back to you. So kind of tell me, take me on that journey of coming up with a name for your business. 
That's brutal. So with branding and marketing and all that kind of stuff, I overthink everything. I'm so jealous of people who just wake up and have that snapping moment of like, oh, this, I, even if I know the name, like, oh, I think this will be it. I'll still have to come up with like 200 other ideas just to make sure what I have is the right one. So maybe I'll attribute that as a successful trait one day, but it can be very bad as far as time consuming. Cause if I start focusing on it, I can't think about anything else and I can't get anything else done. And the naming process was big for this one because a name for any other kind of business, especially if it's something kind of on the back end, like, yeah, it's catchy, it's good, but it, it all works out with SEO and your marketing. But for a, as this is going to be a retail online store hybrid, I mean, the name and the first impression is a lot more of an impact as far as like everything we're doing. And like I was mentioning earlier, that first impression. So it had to be good and it had to really tell what we're doing in a good way. So I'll kind of go over the process, you know, my last name Miller. Oh, do I throw something on that? You know, Miller is associated with beers and big commercial welders. So a little bit of a common name. So it was like, all right, I don't know if I want to use my name. It's common. It's overplayed, but also it's easy. But I think the really big thing about keeping my name out of it was the fact that this was going to be a team thing. And I wanted to have this idea that like, this is larger than me. And I didn't necessarily feel comfortable that like I wanted all my guys just riding my brand because they're putting a lot of work in for me now. And I want it to be like, we're all putting work in for each other. Not necessarily like this is for me, by me, all me. So that's that was one thing that kind of ruled my name out of it was I wanted this thing to grow to a certain scale that it was bigger than me. Even though I was the owner, I was the founder, I was the one in charge. But also I couldn't get to where I was or do what I'm doing without a team. So the next step of that was, okay, well, what do I name it? There's so many names that are stores and retails and things that are just so overplayed what do we pick from? So of course, you know, there's this massive list and the easiest way to help narrow that down is just look for what website names are available. And that will help anybody in the similar situation to me narrow a lot of that down because you don't want to settle for a .net or a dash or a one, two or whatever little shortcuts that GoDaddy and other uh, domain um, hosting platforms will give you to try to get you to buy their name. I, prefer something that is a bit more original. And typically if there is a domain that is outstanding in today's day and age, it's going to be fairly original because there are companies that buy up hundreds of thousands of those things just to resell them to people like me trying to start a business. So it, it truly is trying to like find a golden nugget in a mountain of dirt. So the availability was a big thing, simplicity, but also memorability of it. So is memorability a word memorability. Anyway, you'll know what I'm saying. It had to be memorable. So fast forwarding, we came up with the name or not came up with the name. It was a term that had already existed, but I decided to insert it to the um, retail store that I was doing because like I said, it's going to be a retail element to this, but it's also gonna be an online hybrid. I didn't want to do one extreme with the retail side because you're having a storefront. There's so many responsibilities and costs and everything with that. Didn't want to go all online. That's pretty overplayed too. There's another side and dynamic to that one because a lot of the products we're selling you can't necessarily sell online such so as like used large rehab pieces of furniture that are already assembled can't really ship that so we had to kind of play to both because we needed a footprint that was online and we needed a retail element for people in front but we didn't want to have to necessarily have the pressure and the overhead of having a large retail front and where I'm in the Birmingham, Alabama area, the retail over here is so expensive for commercial and residential. So that kind of ruled us out of that. So I came up with the idea, okay, we're going to do this online in-person retail. Let's get a warehouse that can is a very favorable zoning for the city. So we can do a little bit of everything out of here, but also is affordable for the company's wallet in the startup phase. So we came up with the name Click and Mortar Shop. Being the idea of instead of brick and mortar, click and mortar, it's a pun. Well, e-commerce term that has been around for probably since the inception of the internet is more of a idea of a retail shop that also does shipping and online logistics and sales out of the same location to, I guess, maximize the square footage. And that was exactly what we're doing. And through some searching around of the internet and social media platforms, no one had actually used that name. 
in business yet to like describe a retail type shop. So we just said, all right, let's do it. If you can't figure out by now, the everything was available on social media. The website was available. The email address was available. Everything was available. So no one had done it. It wasn't trademarked. There was nobody who had a DBA in the state. So that was the name we decided because it was memorable. It was simple enough. It was available. And it conveyed exactly what we were doing. We were a retail online hybrid store and we were new and doing something, I guess you say, especially for this area, that was a little bit different. And we really wanted that to stand out. We didn't want it to be so extreme and crazy where it was almost confusing where there were some names we had like, Oh, what does that even mean? What are they doing? So that was the name that we decided on. And as you try to hear by this answer, there was a lot of thought by me to try to get to that point and feedback from Eric and then family members and my guys who were working with me and sometimes total strangers because it, I had to get that feedback to know like, okay, are all these thoughts in my head good? Am I in the right direction? Am I in the wrong direction? And I could still overthink it to this day, but eventually we just had to like hit the brakes and stop and go back to our phrase done is better than perfect. I like the name. I would always think, Oh, maybe there could be something better, but that's what we went with and I'm happy with it. And the logo, that was a fun one to do. But um, yeah, we just did it. So that was how we got there. So tell me what it's like starting your dream business in the middle of a global pandemic. Yeah, so that was a fun wrench. So the timing of that was exactly right. It was like right when we decided to do this is pretty much when everything shut down with COVID. So done as a side hustle, probably 2011-12 is when it started to like really be like a financially stable side hustle that would kind of have it ups and downs depending upon school and work. And then last summer, so I guess summer of 2019, that's when I got the new truck and really scaled this thing up as a much more, you know, it was like the money from this side hustle was actually paying bills now. It just wasn't fun money. And rolling to January of 2020 is when I was being much more consistent and diligent and even got like a it was a storage unit. It was like a warehouse size storage unit. It was like a pretty large one with those large 15 foot ceilings and a huge roll door and everything like that. So it was probably like the biggest storage unit you could buy before you actually have to get a warehouse. And that's what we were processing out of. It was really close to the house. And that was what I was working out of. And I had my buddy who ended up coming on with me full time, but he was sort of helping me on the side here or there because he had some free time and he lived close by and it was, everything was close and just made a lot of sense. And as we were doing this, and it was like, okay, the writing is on the wall to scale this up, and to scale it up, and to scale it up. The timing of our work was almost growing as the global numbers of COVID were growing. It was like, it was like a parallel increase, which, in hindsight, kind of sucked <laughs> for the world and for my business, because I, I I do think it did. We're doing all right, but. I, I sometimes will catch myself wondering like, oh man, how much more successful or how much easier would this be if COVID wasn't a thing, but can't dwell on that too, too much. Cause it is what it is. So it was, uh, it was in March and April when we decided like, Hey, we're going to go all in. And then may, when we really started like, Hey, I'm going to look for a place to sign a lease to actually get a place to work out of, to do this. And that that's when all the stuff was going on. And yeah, there's a lot of bads to it. I do think there is a blessing to that because actually during that time around here, a lot of commercial real estate opened up because there weren't people who were renewing leases. There weren't people who were getting into them because there was so much uncertainty. So maybe in another scenario, the building I'm in may not have been filled because some other business might have jumped on it. And with selling secondhand goods, as I mentioned earlier, like I, when I started this, you know, after the 08 recession that really went to 2012, 13, 14 range when we could really still feel the effects of that. People are very money conscious when times are a bit tougher with recession or in this case, global pandemic, because there is so much uncertainty. So with that, there is a, a little bit of an increase of desire for secondhand goods because people realize, well, Hey, I may not want to put all my money in buying this new item, but this is something we need. And the compromise for that is secondhand goods. So this is a fairly recession proof industry, which is good because when times are good, you're going to survive. But when times are bad, you're also going to be needed. 
So thankfully from that standpoint, we should be able to ride out the storm fairly well. And in that process, actually help people who are having some money struggles because we can at least get them goods that they need at a very, very fair price that they otherwise wouldn't be able to get because I can get my stuff so cheap. I can still make good margins for myself, but also provide good margins for people. But uh, there just have been a lot of uncertainty uncertainties. And there are some things that definitely make me nervous about it. And every day is a new day of learning and just, sitting there and crossing my fingers and hoping that we don't have any more bad news. But as a business owner, especially startup business owner, when you're hearing things about shutdowns of businesses and people having to stay home and all these orders, when that, when that started, especially I did notice there was a pretty steep decline in my sales. Thankfully we had enough in the nest egg to get it back. But um, procuring items was a lot tougher because a lot of the auctions where I get my items from, they shut them down. Some of them were shut down for four months. And that definitely hurt us a lot because once it was over, everybody was so desperate to fill their inventory prices for goods shot up. So I was paying four or five times the normal price minimum, at least what I would be paying to get these comparable plots of the things I get at the auction. So in that standpoint, it did hurt us. And I'm still kind of (laughs) dealing with some bruises from those financial blows. But, uh, yeah, I mean, every day is a new day with COVID and we just don't necessarily know how it will happen. And I just kind of have to take every day, one day at a time, just be blessed with the success we've had so far and just try not to think too much of what could be or what couldn't be. And just uh, hope and pray that we get through it. And obviously the business can survive it as well. And I know me and a lot of other entrepreneurs and business owners are on that same boat. Do you have any anxiety or pressure that you put on yourself or you feel like, others put on you because you're in a serious dating relationship while also trying to be an entrepreneur and I only ask that because I actually don't know the answer because I always question or ask this question myself rather because I am single and feel that there's less pressure to fail because yes like my family and friends are you know watching me or counting on me or rooting for me but at the end of the day like if I fail or screw up I don't I feel like there's not someone really depending on me financially. So what impact has being in a serious relationship or if at all, I don't want to put words in your mouth, had on you and how you think about your future or the business's future or, you know, your fear or not fear of failure has, has being in a relationship impacted that at all for you? Oh yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, in any, this is a very general question as far as any business I would uh, go out to say and you know, starting this before and being a workaholic, I have uh, had to deal with my love and almost sometimes borderline obsession with work. So at the very surface of that, it just has to go back to that time management and there's just so much time management and just like go, 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 sprint, 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 get through it, get through it. And I had made the mistake years ago and obviously not just with relationship or friendships, but also in dating that I would put the business and the work I was doing before a lot of those other things. And I would say I definitely missed out on a lot. And this was years ago and I'd started my first business in school and I learned that I was overworking myself and distancing myself from other people in my life, whether it be relationships and friendships, family, all that missing family events, birthdays, et cetera, et cetera. Because it was like work, 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 work. And I saw the impact that had on me, those around me who I care about. And I had to learn from that and say, okay, I can't make those mistakes again. I only get one life. This business is, yes, I love it, but it's not, it does not need to consume me. It does not need to be my everything. Like I have to dial it back and have a balance. So the big difference between that and now is I've got a team of guys that can help me to in turn have that balance. But also, it's so important. For the person you're dating to know, hey, this is what I do. This is what I am. If you're looking for someone who works from 8 to 5 and then any hours outside of that is not work, then I'm not that person. So it sounds kind of weird. I don't want to sound like I'm some prick, like setting some ultimatum for the future girlfriend I'm dating. But also when you're getting to know somebody, like they need to know what – this sounds so silly to say this – what it means to date like an entrepreneur. I always think of the phrase from sports like, oh, a coach's wife and everything it means to be a coach's wife. Well, it's 
I don't know if an entrepreneur's wife is a phrase or not, but same kind of mentality of like, hey, I might just randomly start a business one day, or I might have to work some crazy hours here and there. Like, yeah, there's some flexibility if you want to take an impulsive trip here. Like, I can do it. I don't have to ask off for anybody. But there also are a lot of responsibilities that I have to do for my business that I don't necessarily know. And there are a lot of unknowns, but I set that precedence really early on. So none of that really came as a surprise. And I made sure like it was known, like, this is my passion. This is what I love to do. This is my dream. And then knowing for both parties that, Hey, this is how it's going to be, but we're going to support each other. And me currently the relationship I'm in that, you know, there are some tough times for sure. As far as the time, there can be some late nights, some days I'm just absolutely drained and, things will come up and there's not as much continuity as you would have working for another job, but you just have to be there for each other. And the, I'm, I'm fortunate enough that um, there's a great stable place as far as just support across the board that um, having that rock in my life to be able to continue to do what I'm doing with work, but also have uh, the help I'm having at home to be able to do that is an immense help, but also too, there are some downsides of it is the uh, financial uncertainty of when you work for yourself, you don't always know what that money situation is going to be like. And as far as like moving forward with that too, if you're starting a business, planning a wedding can be really hard. Saving up for an engagement ring might be really hard. So it's important to have that stuff known, like just be transparent about it and just, know that hey like this might be how it's going to be for a while are we okay with that and just be very open with those type of discussions because the business you know in a way is kind of like raising a child and but just making sure that it doesn't become overwhelming to where you're missing out and, be, and falling behind and what's going on in life and the relationships you have it would be dating and also your friendships and family. So it was just learning from those mistakes and trying to use that time management to be more present in the time that I'm in and being more, I guess you could say, um, I'm not conscious, but just being more, was it word consistent? Is that the word I'm looking for? Intentional. That's it. Be more intentional with how I spend my time. And, you know, as far as dating and yes, being in a long-term relationship, rounding on about three years to make sure that uh, I really need to get X, Y, and Z done, but I need to get home because we need to spend some time together. We just need to hang out. We just need to talk. And yeah, I would say that just being more intentional with it. And unfortunately I got better with it because I had to learn from mistakes in my past, but that was the benefit of having a second round of starting businesses is you do have some mistakes you can learn for and do it better the second round. Do you feel like entrepreneurs are born or are they made? And the only reason I ask that is because I feel like we're in this era where entrepreneurship's cool or, or everybody wants to start something. And I'm definitely not one to say that entrepreneurship is this like exclusive club and, oh, you're not good enough or I'm pointing fingers. But I just think that there's a lot of things that entrepreneurship is being put on a pedestal more than ever before be it because it's cool to put in a social media bio, be it that, I don't know, that it's supposed to show that you're a hard worker. It's just like people are coming out of the woodworks to say that they're entrepreneurs. So in your experience, do you feel like you were born this way? And whenever you've done your own businesses, it's been a completely different feeling for you than versus when you've worked in traditional corporate America jobs in the past, which I know you have. Or do you feel like anybody could be an entrepreneur at any time? So this is going to be a fairly controversial answer, and that always a fun word for your podcast, controversial. But um, I thoroughly believe I was born. It was in my blood. I come from a family of entrepreneurs. Very, very much textbook, rags to riches stories of people in my family who did some really awesome things in the business world who had nothing to start on, and they bootstrapped it all the way up to multi-million dollar companies. And I could obviously only hope that I would be on a similar path to that. And now, like I mentioned earlier, something that was very imprinted on me, but I think people are born. It is a mindset you have. And, you know, obviously you and me like that was both our majors, our degree, say small family business entrepreneurship. That's what we do. That's like who we are. It's almost like part of the identity. And yes, it's like, I think anybody 
can be an entrepreneur, but what really is an entrepreneur? To me, I hate to say it this way, but, oh, I'm going to go out and I'm going to raise some investors and get hundreds of thousands of dollars and basically have everybody else do some work because I was kind of conducting the orchestra, yada, yada, yada. I just have a hard time really swallowing and I'm a sort of respecting that person as an entrepreneur versus someone that was like I said, a controversial word here, but it's kind of like a puppet master. Like they just, okay, you, you connected a few dots and you call yourself an entrepreneur just because I can shoot a basketball and make it doesn't make me an NBA player. So I guess I have a little, a little bit more of a harsh feeling on that answer, but I mean, I think there's people who are just two true grinders, true hustlers, folks who can do it. Those are the real ones and no offense to those who do it, but you know, it's, oh, hey, join my pyramid scheme, and you're an entrepreneur, be your own boss, stuff like that. And I think a lot of people kind of get sucked into that Shark Tank culture. They see the, and I, let's compare it to like a TLC of this whole idea of, like, oh, I want to flip a house. And it's like, they show the before picture, and they show the after picture, but they don't show any of the change and the blood, sweat, and tears it took to make that happen. And all that middle ground, all that blood, sweat, and tears, all that work, all that stress and anxiety, that's what being an entrepreneur is. That guy who can do it all, wear all the hats, and make it happen, that's the real entrepreneur, that person who has a story and the one that can just take the hit and get back up. And to me, I just feel like if those people aren't the ones that can do that, just because you're doing entrepreneurial things doesn't necessarily make you an entrepreneur. What advice do you have for someone who's listening today who wants to start selling things on eBay and maybe they're not even you know certain that they want to do this as a full-time job, but they're just looking around. They're like, wow, like I know I can get money for this. I know I can get money for that. What advice do you have for someone who's looking to, you know, whether you want to go specifically talk eBay or just selling things in general, I'll leave that up to you. Yeah. So the, just to kind of hash it out, there's a lot of platforms, um, online platforms. Like I mentioned one earlier, Macari. For those who have not heard of Macari, it is a very similar, it's an app-focused platform, very similar to eBay, but actually has a lot of features that are improved on eBay. So we're checking out, non-sponsored plug. Uh, I love eBay too. eBay just has a little bit higher fees, a little bit more convoluted. And with the resources and the billions of dollars eBay has, I would think they would be able to clean some of the stuff up. But anyway, they didn't ask my opinion on that. Love Facebook Marketplace because it's local. You can sell lots of stuff on there. And of course, there's no charge for that. And they actually are um, offering shipping options now too. So there are a lot of people that are kind of working on the scaled up thing, especially taking advantage of technology and logistics. So for those advice on that one, there's a lot of options and it's not that hard now. The technology has made it way easier than it used to be. But uh, a piece of advice I would give is don't just sell something to sell or, Ooh, I think this has money. The key factor of anything that you sell is you have to have knowledge on what you're selling for a few reasons. One, people are going to ask you questions. If you don't know what you're, if you don't know how to answer them, it's going to really hurt your credibility. Two, and this is something I deal with a lot, is when you have a buyer who is more knowledgeable about what you're selling than you are, especially if it's by a larger margin, you're going to get walked all over. And that is always one of the worst situations I deal with when selling is when someone knows more about what I'm selling than I do. And it absolutely changes the power shift and they have all the power of knowledge and negotiation. And when you don't know, you don't know. So if you do get stuff, you're going to have to be researching like crazy and just learning things you don't want to learn, but you need to know it. And that's one thing that kind of stinks about this that no one really tells you to do it, especially if it's on a large scale size. You need to know the difference between the iPhone processors or the cameras or, you know, an S versus a non S, whatever it may be. Okay. A nano versus a pro or air versus a pro things like that. It's not just an iPad. Like all those little nuances can be huge differences in the sales and negotiation. And yeah, people will take advantage of you with that. So, I mean, there is so much advice and I would, you know, I would just say do it. But start with something you know. If you know about clothes, sell clothes. I don't know a lot about clothes. I would not be a good person to sell a lot of clothes. But find people who do and find you know, take advantage of those resources with that. But knowledge is power. And starting slow, especially with all these platforms, 
if people know how to work them better than you or they know the process is better or, oh, this is how this normally works, don't ever let people take advantage of, of you with that as well. So just start start with what you have. That's the motto of my podcast. And just start with a few things around your home. See if you like it. Have goals. So if it's like, hey, I want to pay a few extra dollars on my car payment each month, like have something you're working towards. So at least when you feel like you hit a milestone, you've rewarded yourself and then set it further and set it further. And then next thing you know, you might have a full blown side hustle, but there's so many different places to get items. Uh, the, the resources are very much friendly for people who do want to flip. If they're, let's say aren't items that you have to necessarily flip. And then another thing too, kind of going back to knowledge, make sure, and this is a huge pet peeve of mine, be price aware. There are so many people who overprice things, or if you're trying to sell, you're going to be in big trouble if you underprice it, especially if you're trying to make some money. So like I was saying, it's all set by the market. It's very capitalistic. It's not like there's an MSRP for anything in the used market. Supply and demand will solely dictate those prices. So that can, that can, be the, uh, you know, you can feast on that or it can lead to famine. So don't ever buy something having no way an idea what it's worth and then selling something and realizing, oh my gosh, you're up a creek either A, because this is not in demand or, oh, this is an older model, but it just looks new or, oh man, someone hosed me, I paid too much for this. I didn't realize that so-and-so is not in style or popular anymore. And then now I'm stuck with it. So just understand, I mean, there are inherent risks on this. Don't just assume that you've had five successful flips and the number six is going to be it. You go all in, you go bigger and bigger because you can get burned. So don't ever let those highs lead you to do something stupid and just keep it simple, keep it within your realm. And then, you know, as you have a bit more money, you can up your risk. But uh, don't ever overextend yourself while doing it because that would be bad news. Tell me about your decision to start your own podcast what led you to that decision and what has been something that surprised you about podcasting that you didn't expect would god i guess i can't really remember what the light and it's so odd it's so uncharacteristic of me to remember what my aha moment of like ooh, why do i want to start a podcast i guess and this is going to sound so lame i saw other people doing it and no offense to them but like I kind of thought their content and the quality sucked, but like I somehow for some odd reason enjoyed listening to it. And I was like, I've kind of, I guess in my arrogance, I was like, Oh, I've got something to say. I got some, I got some thoughts on some stuff. I got some knowledge. Like, why well, do I not talk about it? It's kind of fun. Maybe somebody listened. Um, and I can think that just made me get it. And so I was like, okay, what are, all right, let's talk about business and entrepreneur things. I'm got a passion about, and maybe I got a little chip on my shoulder about this and we can sort of, culminate these thoughts and ideas I have into a podcast. I guess that's kind of how it started. And I guess I could say I was inspired by others, which said something lame answer, but I guess it's the truth. So we got to run with it. And what I was surprised about is the fact that like people actually want to be on my podcast. I think I got like a really good elevator pitch. I think I had a really good subject matter that I was like going to be talking about. I think more so than like, I think it was more so than I even really thought it was, which I guess was like, okay, I guess my passion was in the right place. And yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't very hard to get guests and there's been some pretty cool people I've got to meet from it. And I guess it's just, it's something I've noticed. It's made me a better speaker and I guess a lot more aware of verbal pauses like ums, buts, you knows, catch myself doing that every now and then, but Try to be more conscious of my thoughts and my ideas. And okay, if I could say that in a hundred words, how can I narrow it down to twenty but get the same thing, <laughs> same thought across? So it's it's been an adventure, and um, it's been a major learning curve in a way. It's been humbling because it's unlike anything I've ever really done before. So I think that was kind of good for me in a way. It was sort of stepping out of my comfort zone because, as I mentioned about all the sales and flipping and stuff like that I've done. I mean, I've been doing it for years, so it was pretty familiar to me, but uh, podcasting was definitely a new realm and I do like it because it is kind of you to help me sharpen a side of me that isn't, I guess I don't want to say dull. That kind of sounds like I'm 
hating on myself a little bit, but, uh, it's, it's kind of taken a new side of me that I haven't really, um, you know, done with too much. And also too, there's no money in that for me right now. So it's, I won't say essentially a passion project, but it's something I can do because I enjoy it. And I'm not having to think about, Oh, what are the, what are the money is not a factor in how I'm basing, how I'm going to run my podcast currently. And in a weird way, that's really freeing. And I guess I've kind of enjoyed that aspect of like the dollars and cents are not dictating my decision-making around my podcast. So I remember that you actually did an episode on kind of the history or origin story of podcasting, but at least the way I remember it, and then I'll let you give the official answer that podcasting came out in like the early 2000s. It was like a hot thing and then went away for a while and then it came back up. So my question to you all is A, first clarify the true history or origin story of podcasting for us, but B, why do you think podcasting has come back in such a strong way? Do you feel like it's we're all kind of craving this deeper connection and learning about meanings from each other or is it really a lot more simple and basic and that's just that people love talking about themselves okay i do have a good answer on that so um to figure out the full history of podcasting shameless plug to my episode go check it out on my podcast start south i'm allowed to say that on here um but yeah so it did start so in the episode i'll hash this really really quick they uh, there were people that would do it was kind of like as you say online radio the word podcasting didn't even exist when the act of podcasting actually did so it was like online radio that there was like in the early days of like file exchanging in the internet that like people could like listen to an archive and even download which in turn was a podcast and it was so cheap and low budget hobbyists could do it so I guess you could say that was how like the individual would kind of have their own talk show without having to have a radio conglomerate and advertisers etc cetera, etc. Cetera. And then you can really think Apple to it evolving into its modern time with its incorporation into iTunes and then the actual term podcast and how they had a platform for it. And they just put it in a bunch of things for it. Um, as you could say, the really the evolution of the internet and data exchanging and MP3 players, especially iPods that actually had ways for them to be downloaded and taken remotely. So that was obviously before we could stream them and to why there was the popularity in it and why it has exploded in the last few years, which I go into some of that data point on mine. I won't spoil the surprises. It's in the billions is I think people today are so sick of the media and I think they're just so sick of agenda driven news or um, things having to be politically correct or just facts and things that are altered or stories that have to be told a certain way, you just get a lot more raw of that personal feeling with it. So it was, let's just say it's like a piece of artwork or furniture or something. Would you rather have something that's handmade by an artist or would you rather have something that's just churned off an assembly line? And I think that answers itself right there. And that's how a podcast starts. I think there's a lot more craft in podcasts. I think there's a lot more personal feel to it. And I think people really appreciate that more than just your mainstream sources of information and entertainment. And I like some of the um, earlier days of even kind of like YouTube, informatic YouTube channels and podcasts would be like really small things. I've seen the guys scale up on, but and even music, you know, people always say, oh, man, their best stuff was like their earliest stuff because they're, it was so, I don't want to say thoughtless because that's the wrong word, but it was just so organic. It was so real. It was so raw. I know, uh, you know, Gary Vaynerchuk always says, what's well, your best content when you have zero followers? And I think a lot of that is true to be podcast because it's just not overrun with the red tape and it's just people putting out content how they want to do it. And I think now that people have easy access to that, they like it because it's just something new and it's something fresh and it's a new formula and you don't have to have all these network, these red tapes and these, you know, oh, it has to be done, da, 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 production. And it can just be done how people want to do it. And it's sort of rewriting the uh, way and setting a whole new standard for how people get their stuff. And people have a lot more freedom with podcasting and they're not just being forced to, have to take in whatever they're seeing, I guess, what the competition would be, either radio or television. So kind of going out of left field a little bit here, but semi-related to both of our uh, 
origin stories of becoming friends, but our alma maters. What is your prediction for Auburn football this year? Well, my prediction for Auburn football this year is going to be the same as it is every year because it pretty much always goes this way. Auburn is guaranteed to win one game they shouldn't win, and they're guaranteed to lose one game they shouldn't lose. So with it being a 10-game SEC schedule, um, I think this is the year that Auburn finally gets one over on Georgia. But they're going to have a heartbreak game somewhere in there. And I don't know. I pray that it's not Tennessee again. But it very, you know, it, it could be it could be to Kentucky, it could be to Tennessee, or it might be one of the Mississippi schools since they've got new coaches. We have no idea what's going to be coming out of there. Surely it wouldn't be Arkansas. But um, you know, it might be maybe LSU's having a down a, a below average year from losing all the talent, and they snoop one over on Auburn. And the same year Auburn would beat Alabama and Georgia, and they'll lose to somebody else, and probably blow a chance to get in the SEC. So. You'll hear that here. They'll win a game they shouldn't, and they're going to lose a game that they shouldn't. And what those what those games will be, I think the win will be Georgia. I think this is finally the year that one breaks. Uh, I think we'll know in the season who's good and who's bad where that uh, that other loss is going to be. And who knows, they might have a, a third loss in there too that would be fairly heartbreaking. But that'll be I'll, I'll go with that. They'll lose one and win one. Do you feel like at all that we're going to see some of the sloppiest college football we've seen in a while just due to not having these, you know, spring practice and all these team practices? I just have this like deep down feeling that it's going to be a very, if you can even say basic offense, because I feel like I'm sick and tired of seeing Gus Malzahn's basic offense year after year now, uh, where we're running the same plays every single year, the same five playbook, but just overall, like across the nation, do you feel like we're going to see some really sloppy college football, or do you feel like it's going to be pretty much business as usual? Well, currently, here we are in late August, and the Big Ten situation is going to be really interesting if they play or don't play, or do players sue, do they transfer out? So that's going to be, to me, the biggest question mark, if you were to ask, like, what's the biggest question mark today? And related to the question is, if they end up playing being this late behind, canceling the season, that would be really interesting. I have been wondering that for quite some time, especially for younger players. Do they not develop as much? Uh, do our, our teams and players focus as much? Because, I mean, there's some guys who really, really want to play. So I think it might actually be the opposite extreme of that to where these guys just have so much energy and a chip to prove, and it's just there's so much more focus on what they're going on. We might just see a lot more passion out of these guys out there, which could lead to some pretty interesting stuff. And I would actually go with the opposite of that. I think they're going to want to really put on a show. And I think it'll be interesting with the smaller crowds or possibly no crowds. Um, I think that would be the biggest question mark I have is, is that going to hurt the home field advantage thing? Is that going to not give players as much energy where they feel like they're in practice? So, I mean, I think it could kind of go both ways. I think the big thing is really going to be that fan energy. If midway through the season, if they say no fans and, you're just playing out there to essentially practice level noise, and you can hear coaches yelling on the sideline. I, I feel like that could possibly mess with some of those guys' head because third and long, you can hear crickets and birds. You might not have that adrenaline flow, and if you can hear 80, 100,000 plus people screaming their ear, you know, like that might have a big, it might have a big change on how the game looks. And obviously, we've never seen anything like this in our lifetime, so I don't think there's really any precedence to base this on in a weird way i'm kind of excited to see how it's going to play out because there are so so are there are so many unknowns and it's like a giant social sports experiment that we never thought would happen and yet it's happening i felt like we were kind of on the precipice or the eve of a really interesting conversation in college sports and be it that you know there's some legislation specifically in the state of california that they could now start being paid for the likeness of you know the player's brand and that this was going to change college football and then obviously covid hit but I feel like it actually almost pushes the same conversation forward in a more important way because I even think about just the email we got from Auburn's athletic uh, director that was you know kind of basically kicking off this new donation campaign because you know he talked about in the email that all the revenue from Auburn College football is really what funds the other twenty one on campus sports. So do you feel like that? Well, I guess I'll say. I guess the question I really want to ask is there's 
an interesting conversation to me, and that's that I think as a fan, we always put these college football players up on this pedestal, but in the reality, they're still these 18 to 22, 23-year-olds walking around as a college student. So do you feel like, I, I'm just looking at the headlines, I know UNC Chapel Hill canceled class after like a week. Do you feel like that if 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 class gets canceled at Auburn or just any fill-in-the-blank school, that they should also not be able to play sports? Or do you feel like that there's such a financial burden or expectation on on the balance sheet for these universities that they truly do need these students to play regardless or, or what's your just thoughts on that as a whole i'm going to answer these in the opposite direction you asked so going to the financial standpoint i think these guys are adults the players that is and if they want to play they should be able to play i don't see why we can have high school level sports, youth level sports, and we can have professional sports fine, be it college is this huge void of, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? And yeah, it makes a lot of revenue and it creates a lot of jobs. So it's just like, do we not understand that like there is a lot you know, hinging on this from an economic standpoint and from a health perspective? And I've heard college players say this anonymously. They're safer playing the sports and being the facilities than they would be just out and about or going to bars or partying and hanging out with friends. So it's like, to me, I think the safety thing is they're just as safe or at risk as anybody else, if not safer playing in the sports. So to me, I think people who are saying that that's like basically the end of the world are just not really paying attention to the facts and are just kind of fear mongering a little bit there. And I think we just need to get back to a level of normalcy as quick as possible, but also too, especially some of these big programs, like, I don't want to say, oh, it's all about money, but there is a lot of things at stake. And it was like, oh, the millions, they can, you know, they can front it. But like, okay, what about the people who work in the concession stands? What about the people who are janitors? Like, what about all the back end jobs that these things support that, you know, these aren't people who are millionaires. These are people just, just getting by and like, this is their job. Like we're taking that stuff away from them too. It's not just about the players and the coaches and the universities. I mean, the businesses that it, you know, brings that uh, come to the town from bringing people in and you know, trickles down. So we definitely, for the sake of all parties involved, like need to just try to get to a level of safe normalcy as much as we can. Going back to the legislation and player likeness, that one I've been thinking about a lot. And I mean, I do think it's a little ridiculous how strict the NCAA is on that. And the reins are just getting so out of control that the only way to regulate it is pretty much they're going to have to deregulate it, but they're going to have to be careful with it because it can be a slippery slope because, okay, the university can't necessarily pay players because how do you justify paying your star quarterback versus your you know, bench warmer on the volleyball team? Do you tell a male player that they get more money than a female player? Let's open up a whole new can of worms. So... No, I don't think player. I don't think universities can necessarily pay the players with any more. You know, with Title IX and all that, it was all about trying to make everything fair across the board of scholarships for athletes and non-athletes. So, if the universities were to actually pay the players some money, I mean, I think you'd have to have a very, very low base salary, for lack of better words, or stipend or whatever that all athletes that play for the university could get, because legally, you can't necessarily pay one athlete more than another unless there's some way to get past the discrimination that that would open. I'm no lawyer, legal expert, so don't look at me as to that. But on the surface, that's what I would feel. Now, as far as player likeness and outside endorsements, I think that may be the key. But also, too, watch the ESPN 30 for 30 documentary broke. Do you need to give a kid who's 18 years old, who possibly came from very low means or even middle class means, and then make them in the 1% of income earners in the nation overnight because I signed a piece of paper, that could be disastrous too. So I do think there's kind of a weird social responsibility there of like, you can't just be tossing people all that money like that. I mean, they can just ruin their lives and have nothing to show for it just because that's a big burden to put on somebody. So I think there's going to be a lot of decision-making that goes into this and it's kind of weird to make it fair. You might even make it more unfair. So you know, I don't know exactly what to do it. I mean, unfortunately, I mean, guys are not going to turn down getting money. So 
I don't really know what the answer is to that, but I mean, I do know, um, I do, I mean, these guys do make money. I do think there needs to be some way to kind of incentivize them. I mean, let's be real. They're getting something under the table, but to uh, shine the light on it a little bit more, but also, I mean, I think there is, uh, there can be a dark side to doing that as well. So all aspects of that need to be looked at very closely. All right. So last question, every single guest gets the same last question. You're on the no board zero days podcast, which is zero days when you get nothing done towards accomplishing your goal or dream, be it starting a click and mortar business, be it a college athlete, be it you're trying to lose weight. And so I just want to ask you and I'll let you take it whichever way you want to go. What advice would you give to someone who's stuck in this zero day mentality where they just feel like they can't get anything done towards wherever that goal is, be it pressure from family, be it pressure from society, be it pressure that they put on themselves. What piece of advice, a story, uh, just what would you say to that person in this moment that's stuck in that zero day mentality and you want to get them into, you know, taking those steps or taking that leap of faith to whatever their goal is? Yeah, I've unfortunately had some zero day situations throughout my life and I guess I can relate to some experience on these, but the, uh, the key thing for that is, uh, identifying support and also identifying problems and more so referring to people in those situations. So, I mean, if there are people, and I mean, sometimes they can be family, who might be toxic or non-supportive, figure out how to push out or minimize those interactions in that intake of energy as much as possible. Opposite goes for the support. Find out who is the supporting people and try to get as much of that as you can as possible and balance that scale in a good way that will help a lot assess your own heart. And so for me, I know I had dealt with some of my struggles had been like with anxiety. So that was a much more internal thing for some of my zero days in the past and being very self-aware of that and going back to the support system. I became self-aware of that because I was open and having conversations with friends and, Oh wow. Like, wow, what you're talking about sounds a lot like what I'm dealing with. Oh, that's what that is. And that allowed me to get help. And a lot of my zero days really, rooted back to that and something I dealt with, but because I did that and once again took to the support, I was able to get past them. But there can just be so many factors of that. I think it's just being very aware and then understanding too, where are the goals? So if you're having a zero day, what would get you out of a zero day? Why are you having that zero day? And not being afraid to admit that weakness, because typically if you're having a a zero day, like that's not a good thing there may be a problem associated with that and just understanding that like, it's okay. We live a long time. We have a lot of moments. There's plenty of time for do overs in life. So even if something may be perceived as like a failure or kind of a dead end, like it's okay to back up, turn around and start over. And it's just having that mental perspective of that positive energy and just knowing that a zero day doesn't mean a zero life a day we get a new one tomorrow and just seeing, okay, well, if this is where we are here, where do I want to go and just slowly, but surely even going back to, I was talking about my business, just put one puzzle piece at a time, compartmentalize, get it done, understand where you're going, get the support to think, to do it and just be patient with the process because nothing happens overnight. Don't fall for those little pipe dreams of, oh, I woke up and this. Understand for before and after picture, there's a lot of work in the middle to get to that after. And just understanding all of that to turn a zero day into a non-zero day. 